0: Of the fig tree. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of Palm Sunday, March 28, 2021, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, we remember Jesus' triumphal but humble entry into Jerusalem. Jesus enters not only as a king, but as a prophet, warning Jerusalem, not wagging his finger, but weeping over his beloved city and his people. Rev. David Pelleggi exhorts us to hear Jesus' critique of the corrupt temple and search our hearts for the same arrogance and compromise that warranted God's judgment. Lent is almost over and Resurrection Sunday is nearly here. We invite you to spend Holy Week with us at Christ Church Jerusalem. We will be live streaming every day from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. No matter where you are in the world, We hope you can worship with us, either on YouTube or Facebook. This year, we will have an extended Good Friday meditation, as well as three services on Easter Day. For the full schedule, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Now, on to the lectionary readings.
1: The first reading today, Psalm 118, verse 1 and 2. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. And then turning to verse 19. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Amen. Our our gospel portion for Palm Sunday, the liturgy of the palms, is from the gospel of Mark, chapter 11, the first 17 verses. And it's a tradition that we stand as we honour the Lord, honour the King, as we learn about him. The good news, according to Mark. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
3: Please be seated. Father, we um, come to you as your children. We ask that uh, your Holy Spirit will enlighten us so that we may not be blind so that uh, we as a community can prepare the way of the Lord and not hinder the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Teach us, we pray. Transform us and mold our lives so that we can be faithful disciples and faithful followers of your Son. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, when it comes to Palm Sunday, it's a little bit of a tricky, um, a little bit of a, a tricky thing to preach in a way. Sorry. So let me just start with a, a few words. Um, you might say uh, preamble in a way or perhaps a few uh, points of caution before we begin because this passage along with a number of others have, has been used throughout history uh, to actually disinherit the Jewish people, to bring harm to the Jewish people, and has created a huge amount of misunderstanding. Uh, um, something I don't think Jesus and the early, his early followers ever, ever intended. Now the church, as many people think, somehow doesn't replace Israel or doesn't replace the temple. There was no church when the Gospel of Mark was written. There was a community of believers, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. But people weren't thinking in terms of, Judaism is over here, Christianity uh, is over there, and one is going away and one is being replaced. There is certainly here a critique of the temple. Jesus, like many Jews of his day, uh, has some many, uh, has a number of harsh things to say uh, about the temple itself. And he, is, he does come to Jerusalem not to work miracles. We have we have three of the four gospels have no miracles uh, in the last week of the in the last week of the life of Jesus. Matthew is the only uh, exception. But Jesus comes to teach, and he comes as a prophet. Yes, he's more than a prophet, but he also comes as a prophet. Yes, to warn the city. And he comes not as someone who's wagging his finger and he's saying, I told you so. You're going to do me in, but you're going to get your just deserts. As we read in the liturgy, which comes to us from Luke's gospel, yes, Jesus weeps over this city. He weeps because he loves the city and he loves his people. And by the way, we would do a great disservice if we ever tried to separate Jesus from his people. Now, you might be uh, Bulgarian or Bolivian, or you might be Iraqi, and you might say, well, what, why is it that he has such a close relationship with the Jewish people, and he doesn't have a close relationship with us who live in Bulgaria? Actually, he does. And the same empathy, yes, and the same connection that he has with the Jewish people, he also has with others. But, of course, he was a Jew and still remains a Jew. In the book of Revelation, it tells us that Jewish, Jesus keeps not only a human form, but a Jewish identity. And so that same love that he has for Jerusalem, no doubt he has for Sophia or La Paz, yes, or Bucharest or Nairobi but he loves his people. And what it means to be a prophet was very, very well defined by an American Jewish theologian once by the name of Abraham Joshua Heschel. And all our prophets today in the charismatic movement and throughout the Christian church, they would be wise to listen to these words because Heschel said that a prophet is actually someone who feels what God feels for any given situation. Yes? Not, again, someone walks around and I'm going to tell you this is what the, your future is going to be. But someone whose heart breaks. Yes, because of the dilemma that people find themselves in. Usually that dilemma is somehow self created. And Jesus reflects God's heart for Jerusalem, for his people? Yes, because he realizes what's going to come upon the city. The city of Jerusalem is going to end up being destroyed, the temple being destroyed. And uh, I have no doubt that Jesus would like to have called Jerusalem to repentance, but the city doesn't repent. Now again, here we come into a next, another kind of Christian, um, I don't know if it's a, a Christian uh, preaching point or something I commonly hear. And what I commonly hear is God punished, the, God destroyed the temple, or he punished Jerusalem because they rejected Jesus. You ever hear that? Jewish people rejected Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus. And I'd like to stop there for a moment and say, hey, it's not quite so simple. I know millions, I can look around the world uh, and look through history, and there are millions of societies and cultures and ethnic groups who have accepted Jesus. But it doesn't mean they've been his disciple. It doesn't mean they've walked in the way of the cross. It doesn't mean that they have reflected uh, the values that Jesus taught, which is loving our neighbor, working for reconciliation and human dignity, forgiveness, yes, way of holiness. Lots and lots of people, including in my country, yes, they all... Yet yeah, um, uh, say they accept Jesus. So it's not just accepting Jesus, yes, that's going to prevent disaster or prevent trouble. It's accepting Jesus and following Him in discipleship. It's following Him, yes, not uh, as a way to improve or better my life. I can speak for the United States and certain cultures in the West and maybe some cultures in other parts of the world. There are a lot of people in church because they think somehow it's going to improve their economic well-being. It's somehow going to improve relationships between them and their teenagers. Might improve their sex life. Yes, might just, you know, help them uh, help their well-being or help them to, to flourish. And when things get a little difficult, these people are going bye-bye. Yes. I love uh, also the fact that in my country, the United States, many people are always saying, we've got to get Christians into government office. Talk about a disaster. We can get Christians into government office, but will they act in a Christian way? or will they compromise, or will they be afraid? So again, there's something more than just, quote-unquote, accepting Jesus. It's being a disciple. And yes, Jerusalem largely rejected Jesus, although there are many uh, thousands of followers of Jesus here after the resurrection. And I think what Jesus is getting at is that they reject his way and his teaching as well. Which brings, disaster upon, which brings disaster upon the city. And so if that's our understanding, that Jesus loves these people and he loves the city and he foresees the disaster that's going to happen, by the way, he's not punishing them for say, but in many cases, God lets us in our rebellion reap what we sow. Yes, it's not that God says, I'm going to have to make your life miserable and punish you. God says, go your own way. But you won't like the fruit or the results of it. And so with, the, with, those, with that preamble, you might say, I'd like to look at the passage, Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who have been with us for a few months, uh, in early January, we started to read Mark's Gospel. And uh, Mark has the most fantastic opening uh, in which he quotes uh, from the book of Isaiah. And it says uh, in chapter one, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as written in Isaiah the prophet. And Mark quotes a scripture. And the scripture he quotes is, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And from this verse on, until we get to chapter 11, Jesus, yes, is walking in the way of the Lord. And the prophet is calling upon people, yes, to encourage or to help or to assist Jesus walk <clears throat> in the way of the Lord. Because the way of the Lord for Jesus, and even for us, can be really difficult. Because Jesus is going to Jerusalem. The way of the Lord is the way of the cross. And so it's a. It's an unfortunate story, at least as presented in Mark's gospel. Not very many people actually help Jesus. In fact, what we have are a lot of bl- is a lot of blindness. And uh, it might be the family of Jesus. It might be the religious authorities, the political authorities, the Roman authorities, the religious council, which in the end, yes, brings Jesus uh, to trial or some kind some kind of trial or another. And especially the disciples, but they're always putting obstacles in the way. And Jesus is always being tested. He's always being tested. He's all, people are trying to uh, divert him in one form or another to stop him from getting to Jerusalem. And surely one of the most... Uh, um, You might say uh, encouraging moments is when we have a blind person, literally blind in this case, but I think we can uh, be slightly allegorical in this case. As Jesus is passing through Jericho, he meets this blind Bartimaeus, uh, and this blind Bartimaeus insists that Jesus stop and heal him. He shows great faithfulness, great Uh, perseverance, and uh, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith, your persistence, your perseverance, yes, has healed you. Immediately he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. So do you have one or two encouraging stories? Another one would be the woman in chapter 14 who anoints Jesus for burial. But basically Jesus is being hindered in one form or another. And now he's come to his city. Yes, the whole Gospel of Mark takes us from one year, from Galilee to to Jerusalem. And the entrance into Jerusalem is, I think, very significant. And the significance is more than simply Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Yes? It's more than that Jesus is coming in uh, and being acknowledged as a king. We can all say that Jesus is our Savior. But I think we said last week, what's sometimes difficult for us to acknowledge, is not only that Jesus himself is our Savior, but the way that Jesus lived, what Jesus taught, how he died, and his resurrection determines the shape. It determines what our salvation looks like. Yes? And I'll say Jesus is my Savior. But how does that work? And what does salvation look like? And so Jesus, along the way, uh, is teaching. He's trying to instruct his disciples. He's trying to um, tell them that from Caesarea Philippi onwards, he must go to Jerusalem and die. And of course, it doesn't make sense to them, because even if many of them weren't looking for a political or a military Messiah, they were looking for a new Moses and why should Moses come and die and suffer, or looking for uh, a figure uh, in the um, m- form of Elijah or in the, in the um, footsteps of Elijah? It's probably why you have Elijah and Moses on the mountain, Mount of Transfiguration, because for Jewish people at the time, those were the uh, you might say the two models you know of um, of what a Messianic leader, or what, what, what the Messianic future would look like. And someone like Moses, someone like Elijah. And uh, before Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he, he tells us, yes, what his Messianic agenda is like. And that comes in chapter 10, again, just before the entry. Um, and uh, he hears a um, squabble. Yes, his disciples, uh, the apostles, are fighting amongst themselves. They want to be great. And Jesus says in 1042, he, he called them together. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then, bang, Jesus is in Jericho, blind Bartimaeus is falling behind, following behind. And then we read, that he enters into Jerusalem. with all these pilgrims from Galilee. Now, David Flusser, of blessed memory, was a Jewish Orthodox man who taught Christianity at the Hebrew University, said that Jesus was a genius. He said that um, he doesn't understand Christians. He says, because... Well, he died a number of years ago. He said he met uh, many Christians over the, over the, over the years, and uh, they sincere, faithful Christians. And uh, he said they always thought of Jesus as um, some kind of um, hillbilly or some kind of uh, country person who wasn't very well educated, sort of, to put it in modern terms, a forest dump. Yes, someone who walked around and talked about love and peace and understanding. And he said, and Christians thought, well, Paul was the genius. Or they thought, you know, the genius would be Thomas Aquinas or Karl Barth. But David Flusser says within the context yes. of, uh, of Jewish religious thought throughout the ages, he said that Jesus was clearly, yes, the flower of Jewish civilization. Yes, that uh, there was no one like him. And um, I think we can see this in the way that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Not only is he a master teacher, but in the tradition of the prophets, he's going to demonstrate, yes, what his messiahship looks like. He's going to show us what the messianic agenda looks like and the messianic task. And he might be doing it, with a little bit of mockery, or even a little bit of humor. Who's to say Jesus didn't have a sense of humor? Only boring people would suggest such a thing. Maybe overly religious folks who are too pious, yes. Surely when Jesus meets the Syrophoenician woman, and he says, I can't heal you because, you know, you're a Gentile, but you know, I don't heal Gentiles. Surely he had his tongue in his cheek, or he perhaps he was even being facetious. But there is some humor, I believe, in that story, and I believe that uh, also Jesus is mocking, yes, the political situation of his day, because while Jesus came in from the east, every Passover, Pilate would come in from the west, and he would come from Caesarea and he would come with his cohorts, and he would come with his troops, and they would come with their horse soldiers, and they would bring their banners, and they would beat their drums, and they would bring their military equipment, and he would lodge himself, yes, in Herod's palace, which is uh, not even a stone's throw from where we're meeting today, uh, meeting now at Christchurch. And with all that pomp pomp and circumstance, yes, he's the imperial power. He's what matters. And how does Jesus come in? Jesus comes in. People are, um, of course, praising the Lord. But he doesn't come in on a chariot. He doesn't ride a war horse. John's Gospel, it says they put down palm branches, but that's the only Gospel that mentions palms. The other Gospels mention that people uh, put their clothes on the road, and, uh, and other, mention, other Gospels mention uh, their trees or branches of one kind or another. And Jesus enters, yes, in humility. He's hailed the King of the Jews, yes, People talk about, I have this expectation of kingship and kingdom. But what kind of kingdom? And yes, Jesus can say, I came to, I didn't come to serve. I didn't come to be served, rather, but I came to serve and to give my life to die for many. You can say that verbally, but also he demonstrates it, right? In in, In many different instances the fact that the way that he heals people and drives out demons, yes? The meal that he has with his disciples uh, before he dies and demonstrates, yes, what uh, salvation looks like by talking about uh, broken bread and a poured out cup. Jesus is demonstrating this. And this is where I think we see the genius of Jesus. And it wasn't only a message for those disciples, it's certainly a message for us. You know, um, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 23, there's a really interesting passage. And the passage is, is that the, um, the high priests, the temple clergy, have brought Jesus up before Pilate. The Pharisees are missing in this story, by the way. And once they get Jesus before Pilate, here's what the Pilate probably says to them. Why are you bringing this man to me? And they said, well, we've got three things against him. Here they are. It says, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah. First of all, claiming to be the Messiah, is there's nothing wrong or illegal about that. He did not oppose giving taxes to Caesar. It's a lie. But the most interesting one is he is subverting our nation. He is subverting, he's undermining the Jewish nation. But of course, that's not true. The only thing Jesus was undermining here was the temple leadership. because of his opposition to the temple, which we'll speak about in a minute. But if we think about it, Jesus wasn't undermining the nation in the way they thought. Actually, Jesus was undermining all of human reasoning and all the values that we hold to be important, at least worldly values, values of the flesh, values that are promoted by powers and principalities of this world. And so Jesus doesn't seek success. And he doesn't go for power. And it's not about money or good looks. Yes, it's not uh, about getting ahead at all cost. It's not about the ends justifying the means. That's the basis on which much, much of our culture and our society works Yes, with me being in the center and my well-being being being first and foremost. Jesus subverts all of those things and actually offers an alternative. And it's interesting, isn't it? Well, it's not only interesting, it's revealing. Pilate came in with his drums and his uh, spears and his swords and his chariots and his horses And where's the Roman Empire today? The Roman Empire is gone. And one day the American Empire will be gone. And the Chinese will come and go. And the Russians will come and go. And uh, the woke culture will come and go. Sorry to say, rock and roll will come and go. (laughs) I know, it's tragic. It'll, it all passes away. Yes. But what remains? Today there are two billion people who call Jesus Lord. Yeah. There are two billion people who call Jesus Lord. And they have had an incredible influence on history and have changed history. And so Jesus does subvert, but not in the way that uh, we sometimes. at least in the way he was being accused in uh, Luke chapter 23. But after entering into Jerusalem in a form of humility, he goes into the temple, our text says, and he looks around and he returns the next day. And um, you have to ask the question, what did Jesus see? I mean, he saw on one level, yes, the largest religious temple or the largest religious building in the ancient world. 35 acres. Took how many years to build? Over 80 years to build. So when Jesus went into the temple, it was still being built. Parts of it was still under construction. It... uh, was maybe one of the most, at the time, one of the most beautiful buildings uh, in the ancient world. More importantly, it's where heaven met earth. Yes, it's where God and human beings, you might say, intersected. It was a place of forgiveness, atonement. It was a place of prayer, it's what gave a community its identity. It was, it was essential, too essential. It was big, it was too big to fail. It was critical, critical theologically. Yes, all of the theology, much of the theology of Israel at the time was somehow wrapped up in this temple. And yet Jesus comes uh, and he has a critique of the temple. His critique is not that there's economic activity in the temple. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so we're not going to repeat it's, His critique is the way it had been, the way it had been corrupted. Right? It became a den of thieves because the people running the running the the temple, they were. Uh, scamming people, cheating people, right? Bringing dishonor to God, um, desecrating the name of God by the way they behave. And by the way, this isn't just a gospel critique; it's also uh, a Jewish critique at the time. And many, uh, uh, many who criticized the temple for the same reason that Jesus did. And so. Those people running the temple, yes, because they thought it was so important and so critical theologically any any end justified or any means i 'm sorry justified the end, meaning we 've got to keep this thing going somehow God needs us, you know somehow we're we 're just important for the for the cosmic scheme of the universe and Jesus yeah, <clears throat> doesn't follow along with that line. And I think, by the way, we could instead of worrying about the Jewish people two thousand years ago, we should worry about ourselves as Christians. Yeah, how many ministries and churches operate on the same way? Yeah, what I'm doing for God is so important. He's not gonna mind if I cut corners here or cut corners there. He doesn't mind, you know, if I sleep with the secretary, well, He doesn't mind if I say this thing or do that thing. Because after all, I'm, we're important and we're essential and we're doing God's work. And by the way, we're anointed, don't touch me. All we have to do is remember the critique that the risen Jesus brings to every church in the book of Revelation. Yes, just like the temple, we're not beyond criticism. But what Jesus does is that uh, in, in his critique of the temple, he then, or Mark for us, gives us, you might say, his only miracle during the week. And this is a kind of an odd miracle, um, very strange. And the miracle is like this. It says, the next day, after he Jesus, by the way, overturned the tables, which was a prophetic act, just as riding a donkey into Jerusalem was a prophetic act. It was a prophetic act to show, to demonstrate that the temple would be destroyed. Um, but it says that he he uh, was leaving Bethany, the house of figs, and he was hungry. Okay seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf he went out to find out he went out to find out if it had any fruit when he reached it he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs then he said to the tree may no one ever eat your fruit again now i know a lot of people who will tell me and insist that the fig tree always represents israel in this case, and in, in Jesus' teaching on the last days, I do, I'm, I'm convinced 100% that the fig tree does not represent Israel. Here, the fig tree represents the temple, and that's, because, that's the, where the story is put. And uh, this reminds us of the prophets, in the, uh, whether it's Ezekiel or Micah or Hosea, God says he looks for fruit, and if he doesn't find fruit, there is, uh, for for the people of Israel, there will be consequences. And so like the temple, here's a beautiful fig tree, probably impressive looking, but actually there's no fruit. And uh, Jesus curses that fig tree as right? A way, as a way of uh, showing or demonstrating that the temple itself will uh, be destroyed. Now, why, why did, uh, perhaps we should ask, maybe it's not fair. You know, figs don't start coming out till May. This is Passover, maybe this time of the year. How can the fig tree be cursed? I think that I think that detail is put into the text so that we don't take it literally, right? So this isn't literally about a fig tree. It is indeed about the temple. And Jesus goes on to say, um, well, he goes on to then uh, turn over the, um, the tables of the money changers. Money changers were scamming people and cheating people. Uh, And by the way, all corruption stinks, but corruption done in the name of God, corruption done in the name of Jesus or the name of the church, stinks worse. Yes, stinks worse. You know, you want to be corrupt, you know, for your own, it's easily understandable, horrible. Yes, if you want to enrich yourself. But uh, to... um, to, to use God and to uh, bring him his name into uh to a uh, disrepute or desecrate his name, so Jesus overturns the tables, yes, or those selling doves um, and then he has this my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers we've spoken about this in the recent past um And then it says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. By the way, that brings me to another myth. The myth that uh, preachers love, because they can uh, say it demonstrates the, the fickleness of human nature, right? Is that the crowd that welcomed him on Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna, is the crowd that yelled, crucify him on Thursday. Nonsense. Yeah. Jesus, had, Jesus was popular with the crowd up until the day he died, and he had to be arrested at night. Yes. So don't fall for that, uh, that myth. Um, there was a small crowd, yes, uh, in front of Pilate that yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, being a wimp, being afraid, uh, being a very fearful man, afraid of his higher-ups, those over him, uh, crucified Jesus, uh, ordered his crucifixion. And then we get the strangest teaching. Um, It says, in the morning they went along and they saw a fig tree withered from the roots, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. In chapter 13, when Peter wants to um, remind Jesus how beautiful the temple is, he's going to say, Jesus, aren't you impressed with this beautiful building? He uses the same words, teacher, look. And here's what Jesus says. And it doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins." What's the connection? Tell me. Some people say, well, Matt, Mark collected a bunch of random sayings and decided to stick them there. Yeah. What's the connection? This mountain. What is this mountain? What is the mountain in question here? the mountain of the Lord. It's the temple. Yes. It's talking about, again, the destruction of the temple. Now, if you're warning Jews or Jewish believers in Jesus, yes, that this temple, which is too big, which is so huge and so big and so beautiful and which gives you an identity, and it's the place where heaven and earth meets, it's the place of forgiveness. It's the place of sacrifice. By the way, not all sacrifice was connected with the forgiveness of sin. It's the place of prayer. Yes, remember Solomon says that you will face this temple and pray and God will answer you from heaven. That's in 1 Kings. I mean, surely you're going to have a meltdown. Surely you're going to be in a panic. By the way, just as Jews were, how do we handle this? And Jesus, after predicting many different ways, not only verbally, but uh, uh, demonstrating, um, and you might say acting out um, the destruction of the temple, does not want to leave his followers you know, in some kind of state of shock or some, uh, some, uh, at some loss. And so Jesus, as we read in other places in the New Testament, he now teaches that while this mountain will be removed and that the temple will be destroyed, the place where heaven will now meet earth, yes, is in the community of his disciples. And those disciples, right, if they pray with faith, yes, God will hear. And if they forgive each other and act, uh, uh, act toward each other uh, in the way that he teaches or the way that Jesus commands, yes, their sins will be forgiven. So you have... The you might say the focus, the locus of prayer, the locus of um, forgiveness, is is moving from the temple, which Jesus foresees its destruction, and it's moving to the community. And we might ask, where is the sacrifice? The sacrifice. I read to you. At least on two clear occasions, Jesus in this gospel, yes, he talks about, yes, he he himself will be that sacrifice. That's the. Um, may I repeat the verse because I think it's so important. Ten forty five, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what is Jesus hinting at there? Of course, Isaiah 53. And when Jesus has that last Passover meal with his disciples, he um, will um, say to the disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Yes, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So again, Jesus is the sacrifice but uh, the community itself, his followers, those who are following him along the way, yes? Those who are walking along the way of the Lord, those who walk in the way of the cross, yes? In a way of discipleship. And again, it's not merely accepting Jesus. Lots of people accept Jesus. Lots of people pay Jesus lip service, yes? But it's walking, yes. It's walking in the way of, we can say carrying the cross or walking in the way of the Lord. That's where heaven meets earth. Yes, that's where we find God's blessing. That's where we find our identity. That's where we find community, answer to prayer, yes. Yes and ultimately atonement. And that is the shape of our salvation, yes. That's what salvation looks like, yes. And that's demonstrated to us by Jesus entering into Jerusalem, yes, criticizing the temple for its corruption and then talking about the replacement that God has provided a similar process had to happen amongst the Jewish people. They came to similar but different conclusions. But uh, I think most of us are followers of Jesus and we accept his authority. And uh, with his help, we'll pick up our cross, follow in the way of the Lord and be healed of our blindness. So Father in heaven, again, we... We um, need to be empowered by you. We pray for grace. We pray for strength to be courageous, to be your fo- the followers of your son. And we ask that uh, he will dwell richly among us. We pray that uh, as we forgive one another that, uh, and live in reconciliation, that he will hear our prayer. That uh, we will know forgiveness of sins and uh, we will have a clear sense of our identity, of who we are in Him, yes, and what the shape of salvation really is. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.